When I went to secondary school, I went to Bexley Technical High School, which if you've ever driven along the A2, you pass it just after the Dartford interchange as you head into London. And um, I remember one assembly when the head teacher, and in those days, these are the days when head teachers were quite big and scary, not like I was, all cuddly and lovely, but big and scary, announcing in assembly that he wished to see a particular boy after assembly because he had broken onto the school site at the weekend and written something offensive on one of the classroom walls. He'd also signed it, which was the unfortunate part of his action, because, of course, everyone knew that the words on the wall were e easily attributable to him. And when I was young, my sister was given a tape recorder. I know some folk in here may not even know what that is. Um, it's, it's quite a clever device. You could put these plastic things with tape in them inside it. And tape, I mean recording tape, not tape. Don't get confused. And then you could press a button and record your voice and then play it back. And it was about this big. And I was ever so slightly green with envy. And um, I asked if I could have a go. And my sister said no. Well, you can imagine how I felt now. Not only did I feel the sense of envy, but I also had a sense of deprivation and anger. I wanted to get my own back, so I did what I thought was right. I got a blank tape, I put it in the tape player, and I recorded a message which began, Helen Jane Earl of 54 Merlin Road is a pig. It went on and got worse. Funnily enough, when I came home from school, I discovered my mother and my sister standing in the kitchen with said tape player, and there was no denying what I had said. I couldn't say, oh, it was a misunderstanding. You didn't quite understand the context in which I spoke. Oh, no. There were my words recorded cold as ice. I forget what happened after that, probably mercifully. I don't think it was as painful as it might have been had my dad heard the tape, but um, it was certainly no backing out. And I think we've all at times, haven't we, spoken out of anger or frustration or even out of despair and said things that we then come to regret later. Maybe things that have caused others great anguish or offence. We can be like the politician who is driving happily along to their next meeting and then is faced by the billboard recording the words they said last month, which they have now contradicted. There's no escaping it. It's been said and we can't take it back. We even find difficult words and ideas and expressions in the Bible. The more I read the Bible, the more fascinated I am how it becomes such a clear picture of God's relationship with humanity and how humanity is so bad at that, and yet God is so good at it. I mean, I was reading the wonderful story of Lot and his family and his wife, and it was all going so beautifully well. Lot was told by God to get out of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, get out because disaster was coming. And as they left, you'll know the story, Lot's wife turned and looked back 
and became a pillar of salt, which is usually a great source of amusement to children when you tell them that story. What you don't tend to do is to go on with the story and tell the children that what happened next was they moved to another city and then there felt threatened, so they moved to live in the mountains and while they were there in the mountains, Lot and his two daughters, his two daughters had a discussion which went along the lines of, there are no men round here, we haven't got husbands, if we die there will be no heir for our father. And then in turn, one night after the other, they made him drunk and slept with their own father in order to have children. And that leaves you feeling ever so slightly shocked, doesn't it? Because we don't expect to read things like that in the Bible. If we heard that as a news story or read it in the paper, we'd be horrified. But throughout the Bible, we find things that jar and grate and we find difficult to take on board. There are quite a number of psalms which are psalms of lament, psalms that express human pain and suffering and concern and even doubt. And amongst them, there are those which include phrases which make the whole become what's known as a psalm of imprecation. It's one of those lovely words that are drummed into us at college. I don't really know what it means, but it sounds good, doesn't it? A psalm of imprecation. And when we're faced with these words of quite shocking reality, quite shocking expressions of desire or hope of something terrible, what do we do? Do we ignore them or do we avoid them? Do we try and explain them away or do we face them head on and try and deal with them? Now the psalmist who wrote this psalm, like us, is only human. We had a great discussion in the vestry beforehand about how the words we meet in the Bible are divinely inspired. They're God inspiring somebody to write. We don't believe that God sat down and someone dictated, you know, wrote out what God said word for word. But what we do understand is that God, through his spirit, worked through people's minds and lives. And they then wrote down in language which is both shaped by their own personality and also by the limitations of human language. They wrote down what they could do, the best they could. That's why we need the Holy Spirit when we read the Bible to help us understand it. Because it's limited by the humanity that writes it. But it's still glorious and rich and powerful and God uses his word day by day to speak to us. I think Dan's description is, was, um, if you look at this from the human point of view, it's like an ant trying to explain what New York is. It's something beyond our comprehension, and yet we're trying to get it into a form that we can relate to other ants. You'll remember the song um, of Boney M. Do you remember them? Sorry, if you're too young to remember Boney M, um, I'm sorry, but some of you will remember By the Rivers of Babylon. Um, interestingly enough, the guy, the lead singer of the band, wasn't the person singing. The person who was singing was the guy that wrote the song, and he didn't consider himself photogenic enough to appear alive on camera, so he sung off stage, and the other guy just mimed. But that song was wonderful, wasn't it? By the Rivers of Babylon... There we wept when we remembered Zion. It's these words spilling out. But funnily enough, they didn't get to the last two verses. And on Radio 4 recently, a friend of mine was listening to Evensong, and the choir sung beautifully in English, 
um, Anglican chant, Psalm 137, and they stopped at the end of verse 6. Because after that, we encounter trouble. So let's unpack this psalm just a little together. The first four verses, we've got the rivers of Babylon phrase. We recognise that, don't we? And we've got weeping as people recall where they've come from. And then we've got this encounter of torment, of challenge, of mocking from the people around them. And this cry, how? How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Those opening verses are described as pathos. They're words which grab hold of our heartstrings and enable us to engage with these people. We can feel sympathetic at least, or possibly even empathetic, because we've been through similar things. They've been taken into exile, they've been taken from the safety and happiness of their home and dumped in this unfamiliar place, surrounded by unfamiliar things, unfamiliar people, and they feel utterly bereft. Perhaps that's what it feels like to be a refugee today. I'm sure it does. There must be that aching, that homesickness, that longing for all that they've had to abandon and leave behind. All the community, all the sense of security, all the sense of purpose, all this sense of identity. It must inspire at least sympathy, possibly empathy. But it certainly engages us emotionally as we can identify our own experiences with this experience, wherever we've experienced loss or separation. That's where we are. We're on the side of the psalmist here, aren't we? On the side of the people. And he goes on. If I forget you, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. We probably don't actually associate with any one place on this planet quite as deeply as the Jews associated with Jerusalem, Zion. It was the place of the temple of God and it was therefore where God lived that's where God dwelt on the earth. That's where God came into contact with his people. And it was all about their national and cultural identity, even more than Big Ben and Buckingham Palace may be to us. Everything about them was invested in this covenant relationship with God. So there was deep longing in their hearts as they think about what they've lost, what their Lack of faithfulness has led them to. And again, we can identify with that to some degree. Older folk may be forced at times to leave and move from homes and locations where they've lived all their lives because the facilities aren't there to care for them. Younger folk may, may be forced to abandon the place where they were brought up because there's no housing they can afford and no work that they can be paid to undertake. And again, we must come back, mustn't we, to the refugees, those people even now who have had to abandon the places they loved, abandon their identity and security to be able 
to continue to live, to survive. And the psalmist continues in this same thinking, not just now the sorrow, not just now the remembering and the longing for that identity to be restored, but now a reminder to God of what has happened. Remember, O Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to its foundations. This last section is what we, what's referred to as a judicial accusation. This is Israel standing before the judge, our Lord, the judgment seat of God, and crying out for justice. Remember what they did. They gloated, they laughed. They delighted in the destruction of that precious place. And they're holding the enemy to account in the face of God. Eden was a traditional enemy of Israel. And as such, an enemy of God. They exhibited open hostility and gloating towards Israel as it fell. They didn't intervene, they just stood by and watched it happen. And as far as the writer of this psalm is concerned, if you mock God's people, you're mocking God on whom everything relies and to whose glory all things are made. There's a real depth of understanding of relationship we need here, how deep the writer's views of how Israel and God are united. And even that accusation we can contain within our understanding. We know that God is a judge and that ultimately God brings all things to light and secures justice. That's the ultimate thing. We know that there will be a time when we all stand accountable for our lives. Obviously, we know also that our Lord has declared us without sin through his suffering. We all pray for the persecuted and for the transformation of those who persecute. And that's the right thing to do. But that's not the end of this judicial summary, is it? It goes on. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to destruction... Happy is he who repays you for what you have done for us. He who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. I've written the word, whoa. Hang on a minute. It was all going so well, wasn't it? We were right there with you, Mr. Writer. And then, ouch. You express delight in the destruction of the children of the enemy. And even if we for a second were to imagine that horrific scene, it leaves us feeling shocked. We're left reeling. But there now, it's been said. The writer doesn't take it back or try and explain it away. And it's been committed to the page of the word that we delight in. These are words in scripture and we can't ignore them. So instead we must face them and wrestle with them. 
Now, war is a terrible thing, even today. And it certainly was a dreadful thing then. Such things as murdering the innocent children were perfectly commonplace. An attempt to destroy your enemy and all the people completely. And we read, don't we, in amongst those words, this phrase, he who repays you for what you've done. The words show us that actually this very thing has been done to the people of Israel. The person here is saying, you need a taste of your own medicine. These terrible things have happened to the children of Israel. And there is a natural response in a desire, almost out of horror, for retribution, for retaliation. And as in a trial, the statement here ends with a specific request for what the punishment that fits the crime might be. And it's a very human outcry. It's born of anger and frustration. Let the same happen to them as happened to us, and then we'll be satisfied. God loves humanity, and he has a big plan for all people. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. All of this humanity, all of these troubling words, ultimately will be resolved, dealt with by God's big plan. One thing about this statement, I suppose, that we could say is it is brutally honest. And in some ways, even though we don't like it, we realise that this is a human cry, shocking though it may be, to a God of justice and a God who will bring about justice in all situations eventually through his plan brutally honest and God knows what we want he understands what we are saying inside I read a story earlier this week which was quite interesting it was about a lady who had suffered and it's a true story she was um do you know whenever you say it's a true story it makes it sound like perhaps it wasn't but it was and she'd suffered a road accident during which she'd been quite severely injured And one might call her injuries life-changing in as far as her mobility, her life quality was hugely damaged by the results of this. And one day as she was struggling to move around her house using sticks to balance, she cried out in anger and frustration to God. She said what she was really feeling. She didn't try and wrap it up in words. Just in that moment, it blurted out. And then she fell over. And as she fell, she banged her head and she was knocked unconscious. And the next morning, after a night lying there face down on the floor with her head turned towards the front door, she woke up to light streaming through the front door, right into her eyes. And she thought, oh my goodness, I've died. This is 
God's light shining on me, and the last thing I did was to curse God. But as she moved to get up, she realised that she was healed. And she stood up and went out into the streets praising God. Now, that isn't a recommended strategy for approaching God in prayer. But it is certainly true that when we come to God in prayer, we may as well get to the point, because God knows what the point is already. And even if sometimes our words may even shock ourselves, God is big enough and understanding enough and strong enough and even has entered into humanity's way of seeing things, humanity through Christ. That he is not a distant God who doesn't understand. He knows what pain and suffering and disappointment and frustration feels like. We can face the troubles of the world with God or without. And uh, I was asked, do you know you sometimes get asked strange questions when you least expect them? Um, last week or the week before, was it last week or the week before, we were at Cornerstone in Uckfields, the church which I'm, it's my sending church. And I was happily having a cup of tea and a biscuit <coughs> when the church secretary collared me across the table and said, I've got something to ask you. And I thought, oh yeah. And he told me that he was um, working with a young lady who was part of his like, office group. And she, he said she cannot come to terms with there being a God when the world is in such a terrible state. And even your prayer calendar for this month talks of the time at the moment of disarray in this nation, how unsettling it feels. And she says because she can't come to terms with that, she's not able to believe in God. What's the answer, he said, and could you give me, point me in any direction to something useful? Well, as I lifted my jaw back off the table, I said that I would investigate, and I have found several things which, for me, have helped me to understand this big issue, that when faced with such horrible situations in the world, how should we respond? And this is one of the books I picked up. It's actually from the um, Christianity Explored series, and it's called If You Could Ask God One Question. You've probably seen it, or if you haven't, it's well worth it. And there are a whole variety of questions within it, such as, if you're really there, God, why on earth don't you prove it? Wouldn't we love that? Tomorrow morning in the clouds, I'm God and I'm here, it's okay. Especially in the current political climate. Isn't the Bible just a bunch of made-up stories? And one of the questions that's asked is about why do you allow suffering and there isn't an easy answer to that but the one that the author gives and I've read in other places too is the one that I think we should cling on to this evening we can deal with this with or without God but without God there can never be justice 
when the man broke into the school at Dunblane those years ago and opened fire on a group of children during a PE lesson, killing 16 of them and their teacher within seconds, and then leaving all but one of the remaining children injured. He then turned the gun on himself and took his own life. And at the inquest discussing this later, several parents says, what a shame that we will never have justice because he's gone. He's taken his own life. We can't do anything about it now. With God, there will be justice. It might not be the justice we'd long for, the one we might cry out for, but God will deal with that situation in his way. And without God, we have no future. Without God, there is no purpose to any of this. Death is the end of it, and that's it. And without God, we're just animals in clothes. And all that we have done and worked with God in partnership to create and delight in, in music and in, in poetry and in art and all the, the, the wonderful things that have been wrought through human beings in relationship to God are of no account because ultimately they cease and fizzle out. But in God, these things are wrapped in eternity. Our identity will not be wiped out in eternity, but will be brought to its perfection in Christ. We're not abandoned. Although our heart may cry out in frustration and anger, we have a God who has offered us everything in Christ. Freedom from sin. Transformation by his spirit that we may become people who delight in life in all its fullness through all eternity. So let's take this hope to the despairing, to the angry, to the hurting, because it's all we have and it's all that can be relied upon. We have hope in Christ. Amen.